0: Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're getting semantic to understand the deeper meaning behind some of the foods we love. First, we'll look at the big debate happening around the word milk.
1: Who the hell are you to tell me what is the name of my product and my landscape and everything we've cared about when, you know, you don't have anything invested in except to put out a little money to buy it. <laughs> it's our entire life.
0: Then we get the lowdown on the language of cider. So the first thing that's really confusing about dryness is that it has nothing to do with how something actually feels in your mouth. And finally, we get our fill of tiki talk.
2: You don't walk into a tiki bar and be like, oh yeah, this is what Polynesia is probably like. Like it's it's supposed to be like fantasy and stuff. That's the hard part. It's so easy to do tiki bad and that's where it gets a bad name.
0: Tune into this week's episode of Meet and Three. That's M-E-A-T plus Sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Good morning. This is uh, the main course OG. I'm Emily Pearson, and I am here in studios on Thursday, April 18th, with Patrick Martins.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Brandon Hoy.
3: It's a pleasure.
1: And uh, Mike Edison is out today. He is uh, feel better, Mike. Recovering. So, uh, Mike, we're we'll see you next week. I
3: think someone slipped Mike a Mickey.
1: Mm.
2: A Mikey. A Mikey. A Mikey. A Mikey. A Mikey.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So we uh, we have some great guests for the weekly grill this week. Uh, we're in studio here with Joe Carroll of Fetso, Saint Anselm, and Spouten Dival. Oh, I said it right. You did here in Williamsburg. You are uh, really a, a trendsetter in Williamsburg. You uh, took over a corner that is now. Uh, That's right. It's all yours. And Pretty a trendsetter
3: much, yeah. in general for craft beer, for barbecue in New York. I know, you when know, everybody was only drinking,
1: uh, what, $2 PBRs, exactly. and, and what exactly was your the case. your beer price? You know, um, 15 bucks a pop. I,
4: no, at that time, it was probably closer to 8 or $9 a bottle, but still. I, you that, know, was like $2. that was like $300. That was in what? Yeah. That yeah. was 'o three. When we opened,
1: so yeah, definitely uh, put the neighborhood into a little bit of a shock, but it's welcomed. Uh, We also have Brian Kenny, a founder of Heritage Radio Network, and the technology manager for Hearst Corporation's Western Properties. That
3: sounds so fascinating, technology. Yeah, oh boy,
5: it's sexy. Actually, I'm also director of collections and archives, which is way more interesting than technology. But we're going with the boring route.
3: Well, you have to change your voicemail. You also says Western Technology. It doesn't say the archive. I'm of
5: sorry. Now I'm going to feel like a millennial. Who leaves voicemails? Also, <laughs> also,
2: you definitely need to change your voicemail to Brandon Hoy's best friend.
5: Yes. That, what happened to that? Beep. Hi, you've reached Brandon Hoy's best friend. I will be here <laughs> holding Brandon's puppet. Well, I, <laughs> I
1: also just want to give you the award for like best radio voice. Well, thank yeah. you. You were doing some promos when we walked in for the network, and the sound is just... Uh, I don't know. It's, I, it's soothing.
5: Well, Emily, I started on AM in the 80s when there was still the Soviet Union that we were afraid of. We wow. had one enemy. Wow. It was a simpler time. And you were
3: on the AM waves for I was on communism? The, yes.
5: Amplitude modulation. I want to do something here. I want to introduce my fellow Alamedan, Eric Koss, publisher of the Alameda Sun, <laughs> who is on the line from sunny California. Hi guys. Hey, good morning.
1: good morning. Thanks for having
5: me. Thanks for the fine introduction. You're
1: welcome. welcome back. Eric's been on the show with us a couple yeah. times. And uh, is it sunny at seven Oh four out in uh, He's Alameda delivering papers. He's out,
3: out and it about, right? It's Thursday. Uh,
6: actually, yeah, my, my folks are out there delivering the paper. It's uh, it's delivery day every Thursday.
1: I know I was reading that you're a uh, weekly free home delivery to what? 24,000 people.
6: That's correct, yep, and seven thousand online uh, unique visitors every month, uh, at least, so you know everything we do in print we also do online, so
2: and what's happening on the front page today?
6: Um, well, we're still trying to decide on this pesky election with uh, uh, this homeless center they're uh, planning to construct here in Alameda, and the city got pretty well divided over whether they wanted it or not and uh, while the decision seems to be clear the the uh, people that count the votes are still- vo- uh, counting them so you know, too
3: hyper local i don 't care hey listen <laughs> i don't understand
5: the problem with making a list and checking it twice it's worked for Santa Claus
3: all right well yeah he's doing pretty well all right
1: <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna jump in, although I feel like we already have our uh, our first segment of the show is the weekly based. I have an important question for everybody. How do you feed? Your mother? How dare you! <laughs> do you know? Do are we are we all speaking I, the same language about mothers?
5: Is she that old? I know because this was my question. I should probably go last and let everybody else take a shot. We were
1: uh, we were out to dinner the other night with Brian, and we were at a, a restaurant here in Williamsburg, Burano. We were talking to the chef Al about uh, feeding your your mother, putting yeast into it, and feeding the mother for for bread and for for pizza. How do you feed your That's mother? That's a totally
2: different question than what was going on in my head. I that
1: was, sort I was of, that like, was sort how do I answer idea. this?
2: This is crazy. That's where we were going. You so always, what was your you gut answer? You always feed, feed your mother with, with love, right? Right. Love, right. time, right. Yeah, and emotion, and and always some passion. You should probably play some Bach in the background. Right. I feel like you need and, a little music. You know, you want to set the mood. Gratitude. Yeah. Gratitude. gratitude. <laughs>
5: At least you didn't say some Al Green.
3: I'm a catalyst. I just walked by my mother, and I started Slow Food, Heritage Foods, Heritage Radio Network. I just walked by, and bread like starts to bubble and stuff like that. it so I can, revive, it has a strong smell, I can revive a dead mother just by walking that might be by That
2: might be an infection <laughs> that you might need to you. take yes, care yes. of. I'm pretty sure there's some sort of antibiotic out there for you. <laughs>
3: Well, there's a fungus going around that people don't know how to fix. That was on the cover of the Times today, by the way. They just can't stop it. Doctors cannot stop it, and it kills 50% of the people it touches. But most of those people have other things going on. They have weak immune systems. Is this the
1: one that's going through hospitals that people don't want to talk about or admit that their hospitals had it?
3: I read a thing this morning on my way over
5: here about the leading cause of death in the country, and it was really... Pretty alarming. What, fungus? No, 100% of people who engage in the act of living eventually die. Wow. Now that <laughs> is scary. <laughs> yep.
6: Nobody gets out of this life alive, right? That's All right. right. Well, that's, So far.
1: So far, so far. Well, that sort of brings me to the theme of our, our next one. With uh, Notre, Notre Dame Cathedral burning this week, we want to know what else burned up with the church. There's energy stuck in that wood. You can't just create energy. You can't destroy it. So what happens to it? We were talking well, about this with I Brian it, the other day. Mm-hmm.
6: I think it turned into grief, didn't it? Like a, a whole bunch of people got sad when uh, the church burned. So uh, that spirit got converted into grief, in my opinion.
5: Yeah. Well, it's. I mean, I think the, the I deal with a lot of old stone and, and wood and things like that. And um, I didn't realize that the whole ceiling was made out of 14th century trees. they called it the forest. And that's so, yeah, I don't, I just think that you're right. It turned into grief. And then the really interesting thing is that you have all these problems in the world that are intractable and and Notre Dame burns up. And then all of a sudden there's like a billion dollars to fix it.
3: Well, by the way, that money thing is a thing. That really shows that there's social inequality. There's already a billion dollars, and yet that yellow vest movement, you know, they're fighting for social equality, and now a billion dollars. Yeah, it's just a church. The
4: church needs more money, I think.
3: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they're,
4: they're not doing so well.
3: I think it's grief for people like Americans and people who went junior year abroad and got laid in Paris like yes. two hours after visiting the Notre Dame. No so question. it's like passionate. It's just a church. <laughs> what about the fucking red wattle pig? Where when a, when a livestock breed goes extinct, they're so like, oh, the Amazon lost a plant. Wah. No, so it bothers me. It's just a church. Things die. So
5: things, I would say, hmm. um, and Joe, as an iconoclast, you might be able to shed some light on this. Perhaps. But things become uh, institutions, and they stand for something larger than themselves. So what Notre Dame stood for was antiquity. And the fact that antiquity can be the root of modernity. And so when it burns up, it's like watching your uncle die or something. You just never think it would happen.
4: Well, it's and it's a piece of right. humanity, right? And right? our in our collective history. So, you know, you feel a little loss in that sense, I guess. I'm surprised, look, I don't know much about this kind of stuff, but I'm surprised knowing that the ceiling was made of wood and it's kind of an important building that there weren't inherent fire prevention. And yeah. fire suppression devices in place. There wasn't mm-hmm. some sort of, I don't know, some sort of system there to protect it better from fire, like yeah. a <laughs> secondary, or like, this, like
1: a secondary roof that sat this, under this, it. You
4: this, know, many, many cathedrals have burnt down before. Yeah. Many, you know, well look at places. the
3: museum in in Brazil with all that South America. I think São Paulo had a huge fire, uh, and their whole art museum or history museum went down. and the, the, National the government museum. is not protecting its world sites as much as it should, I guess.
5: Well, there's a fine line between historical preservation and renovation. That's another thing that would probably be the source, the source of an entire show. But if you were to say, if I as an American were to say, boy, is it really a good idea to have a forest supporting the roof of this cathedral?
3: But well, By the way, it is going to be fascinating, the workers and artisans who are hired to fix it it's almost, they're going to look around. They're like, how many stonemasons are left? I mean, And it might take 40, 50 years to fix as it took, I think, a few hundred years to build it.
1: But it, do you think, it will, I mean, I have no idea what the intentions are. It's too soon, but will it be, will there be a modern flair to it? Will someone put their mark on it or are they just going to try to replicate
4: glass. it? It'll matter. be all clear glass. Like I can't imagine they would They would do that. I don't, I don't <laughs> think anyone, you know, I think people would freak out. Go
3: up they, in arms.
4: Well, I think there was somehow. an RFP
5: to redesign the spires. So we'll see. But I mean I, I don't know. I, I don't I think that everything that's that's new will be old someday. Um in the town where we live, Eric, there's not yep. much that's that old, but a hundred what's the oldest building in Alameda, Eric?
3: Nineteen eighty
6: two. No, it's like the uh the Webster house, I think it's like eighteen fifty four or something like that. Right. Uh yeah. So that's- uh, so when a when, 160 years or something like that.
5: Right, so when a 12th century building burns up, that's why there's grief.
6: Sure. Yeah, and like you said, it's, it's like an uncle, it's kind of irreplaceable. You can't get those 14th century trees back.
3: I'm gonna put the fifty thousand dollars. Anne and I were gonna to donate to fight cancer and to support the YMCA system, just to rebuild that church. That's what we want. We just want to rebuild that church. The cancer's okay for right now. It's that church that matters. Where I hooked up with that girl.
1: All right. just. So speaking of, about-
6: <laughs> what's next? Well, I think it's you know it's also like a symbol of the whole country of France, isn't it? I mean, it has has some pretty C'est la vie, mon
3: ami. What's <laughs> anyway? All no, right, so we, we were lamenting the
1: other day about change. <laughs> Mostly Brian was uh, lamenting that relief pitchers are being used to start games instead of the tradition of having an official starting pitcher. So we want to put this. <laughs> to Ooh, to
2: food. I wish I had my sampler right now. I
1: know Jeet didn't give it to us today. So how about food? Does it bother you all that traditions are being destroyed, that there's more innovation or is it encouraging?
3: Hmm. But by, why are you booing the relief pitcher? You don't care. You want your team to win. Yeah, I mean, what, it needs to be a starting pitcher. It can't be a reliever that goes the first two, three innings. That Here bothers you, really? The, the, the
2: fact <laughs> of the matter is it's like not the game of baseball. So <clears throat> for me... For me, it's it's less interesting to watch. And I, I don't want to be the old guy that's like, get off my lawn here. But the game itself <laughs> is not interesting to watch for me anymore. It's like, it's just home runs and strikeouts. And it's not baseball. It's not like there was something fun about watching baseball, watching guys move around the bases, this, this strategic attack of like how to score runs. Now it's just launch angles and velocity. It's like, I don't care about math enough to like watch it in motion. Like, <laughs> (laughs) Like baseball is
3: just math and motion, and I don't need to watch it. Well, you know, Mike Francesa, my favorite sportscaster, said you never hear about how good an outfielder's arm is anymore. That used to be the almost the first thing you would say about an outfielder: how strong is his arm? But now, no one's rounding the bases, no one's being thrown out. Just goes straight over his head, [SSS3] out of the
5: park. You hear about what his batting average is.
2: Right. Also, also pretty much everyone could tell you what his launch angle and velocity, and velocity yeah, a, bat speed is. That it's was like, 111. It was I 111. I don't care what his bat speed velocity is. They call it Velo too cuz they had to shorten it. So, I would just uh,
5: say get off my goddamn lawn. There's pitchers should be able to mix speeds and location. You should have a four-seam fastball, a changeup, and a knuckleball. Curveball and a slider is
4: nice. Well, everyone's like, become a hyper specialist, right? It's
3: <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah,
4: <clears throat> you know, nobody can do everything anymore. They, one person has to come in just to do one specific job. And exactly. That.
3: So, what do you think about food? Does it bother you to see traditions no, I think collapse? I
4: think it's a you have to have a balance of both. I think we need to mm-hmm, kind mm-hmm. of rework traditions and relook at traditions and, and innovate, but we also shouldn't lose traditions either. Mm-hmm. And that would be totally that would be, agree. Like, that'd be like losing no- Notre Dame.
3: Right. Well, we uh, talked right. to a very interesting chef named Max from Sambar, and he said, Absolutely innovative is the most interesting thing to me, but you must know the classics to innovate. Absolutely. You cannot come in as an innovator first. Well, I don't know. Like I Jackson mean, Pollock uh, learned every study for 40 years, every type I, of art thing. To this he argument, though, it's thing. almost
4: like what you just asked about baseball. Like if your team wins, what difference does it make? And in a sense, if you do something cool, and you know and but you don't have the background you don't I mean it sort of doesn't matter if you can execute something really great and interesting and delicious i guess it doesn't really matter if you know the tradition or the history of a dish or what the classics are um mm-hmm. but i think it's important if you if you care if you give a shit about food to know all that stuff and i mean i think most of what i've done has always been based on the sort of real classic example of something and then then take it from there then modernize it You know, change maybe a bit of the technique or certainly the ingredients, upgrade the ingredients.
2: But the legacy of the food makes the winning better. Right. So if they no if question. it has no a rich history yeah. and you're good at it, there's something that makes that better. So it's mm-hmm. a, it's the same with sports, right? It's the sometimes like a new franchise comes and they win, and that's great. That's the beginning sure. of their legacy. Right. But but it's the teams that are winning late in, in the their their horizon that yeah, like right. feels good, it's another win, or they're back from the dead, right. or something like and there's that. there's a difference. You between... want to bring something back. You're you're giving it life as it ages. And and this all goes to the aging, aging of wine, aging of anything, it just, there's something important there's about There's a
4: difference that. between getting lucky and being consistent, too. Right. If you could do right. it over and over again, that says a lot more, obviously. A, a
5: brief observation. We are in a, a radio station. We have a guy on the phone who is succeeding at print journalism, an old thing. Radio is an old thing that's supposed to be dead. Um, Patrick, you have a company that sells <laughs> pigs that are supposed to be extinct, Right. So I think that the, the innovation sometimes is retrograde motion. So sometimes the, the innovation is to go back to the classic.
3: Right. And some things should die. I mean, certain breeds of pig did not taste good. So it's not about saving things to save them for nostalgia. But if it's quality, it things mustn't makes, be killed. It yeah, things that make sense. Yeah, Things that make sense, right. for sure.
6: I think you can go back to those classics and look at them and just see if you can do them better. And uh you know, the innovation comes out of that, but I still think that classic original idea has to be there to build from. It's an interesting concept.
3: So so sure. the Jumping to the next question, uh, I want to jump to this one. What is the state? Because a lot of people say you cannot recognize, the public might not know what a classic is. So they might not appreciate its subtleties or how delicate it is or how light or how refined. You know, they want something a little bit more overpowering. We were talking about that before. So manners, what is the state of politeness and decency and knowledge in the dining out public today?
5: Well,
6: do you guys remember that uh, episode of the Sopranos where uh, Tony Soprano comes over and he just basically intimidates the guy that's wearing a baseball cap in a nice restaurant? Uh huh. I don't know if you're <laughs> yeah, I remember he just that basically one. breathes on the guy and he, and the guy feels totally uncomfortable. <laughs> but I swear, like everywhere I go I see uh, dudes wearing baseball caps in, in nice restaurants these days. Least, you that know, would be just, me. <laughs> yeah and you know from time to time I'm like well does anybody else have one on alright I I'll guess I'll leave mine on but you know it's kind of like uh, decorum does seem to be you know slipping a little bit like just uh, I don't
3: know some like the people wear flip flops to planes
4: I have mixed feelings about this I don't know I, I mean I think that it's there is something nice about everyone having some re- level of respect for, for dining out but I also feel again like you know, but women used to wear corsets as yeah, a matter of decorum. They, right. So I mean, what this, are we this talking all about here? And also, like, does it? <laughs> Is it ultimately going to affect your enjoyment of the meal or the food? No, no, no. Or does it really, really matter if we break it down? You know, does it really have that big of an effect on anything? I think New York City is a is a particularly interesting place for that. If you go outside the city, people tend to, and this has been the case for 20, 30 years probably, t- people tend to get more dressed up. They take it more seriously. You go to more places that require jackets and stuff. That kind of is gone in New
3: York. But what about just politeness, hmm. like decency to the waiter, understanding how to tip, knowing how out of order, not being annoying, you know. I don't know
4: that that's changed.
3: I don't probably. think that's
2: changed at all. There's, there's I mean, probably
4: equal, no. you know, amount of cool people as there are jerks coming in. as that's ever just, before. that's you know? just
2: humanity yeah. there. That's that's just the balance of dickheads versus yeah. nice people. And, I, and and there's good there's light and darkness all over. But that that kind of stuff really hasn't. And changed. And I think I, the
1: restaurants that know that they're going to get screwed by someone, maybe on a tip or something like that, they're adding it in. They're they're planning for it. They're planning for like also, tourism. Also, no, I, I was just in Miami, and every single restaurant, it's already included.
2: To be positive here, the younger the younger dining out generation, like like I mean the real younger like the twenty year olds right. and now teenagers. I see teenagers yeah. that are enjoying food. So so I don't know. I, I have to I have to see the positive light here that that I think people are into food more than they were no t- twenty years ago, no, and I think those kids are more inclined to have, like, um, a real restaurant etiquette. And, yeah, and I they see take them. they They, they enjoy yeah. themselves. They understand they what They know the, how to maneuver around the totally, restaurant. Totally. They understand what the waiter has to go right. through to do it. I, I just see a change actually, in the younger
4: I people. I think the younger people take it more seriously. They have a bit of reverence for it. It's usually
3: middle-aged, drunk dickheads that are, like, the <laughs> problem. Honestly, that's, the like- The Upper East Side. Yeah. Basically, Perhaps, third yeah. Third Avenue, Second Avenue, First Avenue.
1: I also think that age group is paying attention to how they dress. And if they wear a baseball hat, you hope that it's with like a stylistic fashion choice. If someone looks like a mess and totally schlumpy and like, yeah, I, Yes. if you're going to judge Why is ha-
3: everyone looking at me right now? <laughs> I was I, I was actively not
5: look looking at, at until right you until you said
2: that. Uh, the me. funny thing is is I just turned really quickly to look at Patrick because I was like, how could he be talking about anything? He's wearing the same pair of corduroys he's been wearing for a month. <laughs> well, I would also say
5: just we should bear testament to the fact that we are off to remember the assholes more than we are the good people. Absolutely. And there are less of them. And it's just that the assholes tend to be louder... Also, you know, it's quite nice people. The
3: people who create problems are why so many rules and laws. It's always that one family where the kid falls off the Grand Canyon, so now it's fence. There's a wall. There's always yeah. mm-hmm. you remember the one terrible story, or the one guy who gets mad at slow food, right. and then so rules are made that no person can make a decision without going to the full board because of that one dude in Phoenix. You know, it's oh, like we, it's we really legislative to the lowest
4: common denominator. And we then do. eventually
3: there's so many rules, there's no manipulating around, you know. I mean, you just can't maneuver because. Because over 100 years, there'll just be a gazillion rules, one new one every month, you know, to cover every base. Or you
5: just get used to breaking rules. That's yeah, I mean, that's I what, like. that's the problem. I went to Cal in Berkeley. I think it was the most heavily legislated city in the world. Everything was illegal. You know, mm-hmm. you, you couldn't spit. Bunch of hippies. Yeah, you, can't exactly. you, yeah, can't you can't jaywalk. Yeah, you can't jaywalk. I it's a bunch of laid-back hippies find the jaywalking.
3: most Nazi-like regime, you know, for their that's hippiness. Right. <laughs> They're getting yelled at if you're walking mm-hmm. on the wrong side. It's like of the, the only sidewalk. thing you can
1: do is smoke pot. Outside. The funny
3: thing about Berkeley is it's fucking <laughs> filthy.
2: You know, people you're just taking like, shits on the like close to the school. You're just like, how does yeah. all of this exist? But it's just so dirty all the time. <laughs> well, <laughs> but it's our dirt. It <laughs>
1: it's own Alabama. it, own it exactly. Well,
2: how?
5: What? You know, we live in a clean town, Eric. How would you? Yeah, yeah what would you say?
6: Well, it's kind of interesting. I think a major characteristic of Alameda is that it's an island city, and so it has, like, these very discrete borders that we, like, kind of, you know, feel like we can control what's going on on our little island to some degree, even though, you know, things get out of control. But, um, you know, it, it's very different than its neighboring city of Oakland. Uh, it just developed completely different because, mostly because it's more isolated. Uh, because there's no major highway that goes through it. Unlike the majority of cities in California, it has no, like, arterial.
2: So Little House on the
5: Prairie, really. It's like City Island for you New Yorkers.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. yeah I was just gonna yeah. say the same thing it's 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 just so not connected to the rest of it so yeah. so it creates this like kind of segregate like natural like separation from everything else I mean Berkeley's Berkeley's problem is it's just filled with kids like there's just no you can't deny the destruction of a bunch of college kids even if they're the yeah. smartest college kids in the know. world they're just it's just gonna be Gnarly, it just happens.
5: That's not. It, it's actually not the kids. It's the people that hang around the university that have been there since the some of them since the
2: late fifties.
5: Seriously, and never and, left. And yeah. they so never sitting left
1: outside.
2: outside. How do you hide money from a hippie? You put it under the soap. <laughs> Stop. Hey,
1: oh, vote right.
2: for Eisenhower. Okay.
1: All right. Total deviation. We're gonna play fuck, Mary kill. Oh.
5: oh no. Oh fun.
1: French onion soup. Meat pie and Parmesan Parmigiano Reggiano cheese. Oh man,
2: that's a tough one. So, oh. Sharing soup is again. so
3: romantic. I love sharing soup with large <laughs> groups of people. I also like hiking with soup, hot soup when I go hiking. So you're
1: clearly gonna marry.
3: I'm gonna the fuck Fran- the French onion soup. Oh man, you just yeah, said too. you that's like so hiking with it. It's, it. it's so romantic. Yeah, but you soup. just
1: so don't you want to marry the soup?
3: No, uh, romance no, is fuck for it. fucking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wow. Don't you know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Does anyone really have an answer for this? Not really. Yeah, I, I mean oh,
2: okay. I think I think I think you what, does. so what what are my choices again here?
1: French onion soup. <laughs> Fuck. Meat uh. meat pie. The only time he's ever asked Kill.
2: for a
3: question to be repeated.
2: <laughs> I'm definitely killing meat pie. Parmigiano-Reggiano. Yeah, marrying the Reggiano. I mean that's a long lasting yep. love there, you know? Yeah, exactly. It, it is, never goes on. It old. sticks around a long time in the uh
5: digestive tract. So because <laughs>
2: Because of the hot
5: gruyere, I am going celibate, but I will marry the Parmesan Reggiano. Everyone. (laughs) And I think I'm going to, I will probably kill the meat pie.
4: Sorry, meat pie.
1: Joe, you have a different angle?
4: I don't want to kill any. I mean, I like meat pie. I have no problem with meat pie. So marry it you or but, fuck it. Well, but I, but that I that also one. really like the other two. So I'm, I'm conflicted here. All right. Oh, you, you could go, Paul.
5: You could go. Uh, what was that show about the Mormons? Uh, you could be Polly I'm, I'm down. Pauly Amorous. Yeah, yeah whatever. You know, just the, marry the sh- them all. The so in the same the vein. That was good radio.
3: Is dissatisfaction with big corporations leading us back to a time where everything will be hyper-local?
1: That's in the same vein. Aren't
3: we same vein. there now, almost? Hyper-local? I no, mean, corporations still rule. Yeah, I mean, but when, it, I don't know,
4: are you talking across the board in everything we do in society?
3: I mean, yeah, well, how do we conceive this Hyper-local
5: question? is a registered trademark of Octane Corporation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, let's narrow it to food. Go, narrow I mean, it to food. I, I, I,
4: we have a long way. There's a lot more we can do, obviously, to become more hyper local. But in, you know, our lifetimes in, in modern American life, we've never been more local,
3: right?
2: In, in no, the, in the I modern think era,
3: I think that's not true. No, uh, Doritos, I mean, uh... yeah. Well, that look, that's not going away, right? Uh, 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 so, so how, how long is that,
4: uh, that? That's been. I'm talking about like... modern American food life, food culture, right? From let's say World War II on. I I don't think it's ever been better Mm -hmm. than it is now and and more local than it is now. I think you have to go back to the turn of the last century and and prior to get more local. I mean,
2: people are learning how to farm places where they never could farm before, right? I mean, there's desert towns that had... Las Vegas is becoming localized. That's right. crazy thing to think about, That's right? A good point. Like they figured yeah. out how to make their own water out of like uh, space, m- like materials yeah. and hookers. Um, oh, and dr- like it. I think they take all of the drugs. They turn <laughs> they turn the drugs into water and farmable soil. It's amazing. They take the juice out of the
5: mats at all the bars. Uh. All, all the mat shots. No, I, I think in terms of hyper local, I saw a a story on TV. It was probably a reality show where a woman was making bread with yeast off her body. That's hyper local. That's
3: like very local.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's gonna smell. That's terrible. Oh,
3: I didn't wow. say That's I that ate it. Really? All right. We we probably. But, but, but he definitely
2: thought eat about eating
5: it. Oh, right. We'll never ask that I think question you're, again. I so, think you're right, Eric. We need both.
1: Okay. Yeah. This weekend's Passover and Easter. There's a new book, The Hundred Most Jewish Foods, a highly debatable list, offering an irreverent list of the most Jewish foods to savor.
3: Just Patrick. in time for Passover.
1: No, that wasn't my list. Was. Well, Patrick, did you, know, you just told me about Amy Schumer.
3: Amy Schumer. Uh, Amy Schumer. Uh, we hung out with Amy Schumer husband,
1: <laughs> and
3: uh, she just did a, uh, a a podcast where she and her friends talked about being Jewish. So we thought that with all this kind of Jewish tetwar bustling about, uh, we would ask, what is the one Jewish food you cannot do without? Bagel. Gefilte. G- That's a real thing.
1: So Patrick this morning told me that i was not allowed to pick something that is just you know culturally jewish it had to be a food of judaism yeah, and because i was like not, so you want me to pick matzah i think the, the bagel bread is that never
2: just a german food so uh, when so the jews he's, were so he's leaving saying Egypt. no bagels like he bagels was is going to be oh, bagels like 90% bagels are, bagels are like
4: everybody's choice
2: it's telling
1: really. me i can't pick white fish i can't pick smoked salmon i can't i mean pick pastrami,
4: i would say pastrami but pastrami yeah. that's true but do the, the jews have pastrami
1: in the desert?
4: no
3: that's
1: How about, not a <laughs> no, that, historically
3: Jewish dish. What about no. rugola? Did about anyone other than a Jew ever make rugola? Oh, come rugula? on. How about, How about a, okay. bitter herbs? Oh, yeah, I read bitter my herbs, Old Testament. Bitter
1: So I'm, I will say they did have the humantashen cookie made from Haman's hat.
3: Yes.
4: I'm Whoa. not not Jewish, but I grew up with an Italian mom who grew up with a girlfriend of hers who was Jewish in the Bronx. Italian mothers and, and yeah, yeah, Jewish, Jewish not, mothers. Not, yeah, especially from New York City. Yeah. not a the fine line. Um, and I grew up eating matzo all the time for breakfast right. and absolutely love it. Still, I make it for my kids now.
1: Do you stock matza in your pantry I, year ma- round? I, let me
4: tell you some Matzo is one of my favorite things to eat. I eat a lot of matzo. I don't What's the healthiest bread? It, probably. I, guess.
6: I mean, it's not I low. Know. It's not yeah.
1: low in calorie, especially not the you egg know, matzo, with,
6: which tastes better. I'll go with, sorry, I'll go with matzo ball soup. Uh, if I can't
5: have bagels,
1: you can have bagels. We'll I, I, I allow bagel. We'll discuss
5: it. We'll, discuss. This is we'll when, get
3: with the rabbis and we'll discuss it. This was right. the great bagels. schism
5: in the main course OG was based on what is a Jewish food. And that's when Emily got her own show and Patrick... Had
3: his own. I know, I know. I like that you used the word (laughs) schism. Nice, the word schism. That was when the Pope left and went to Avignon, right? And he started his own. That's right. Yeah, that's good. Schism. It's a good word.
1: All right, everyone here is successful. I'd like to know describe your management style in under 30 seconds. I will start. Mine is I, I, what,
3: you're, so your manager, you're already interrupting. Yes. We know your management style. Always
1: interrupt. interrupt. There's, my, there's my answer. <laughs> no, my real answer was going to be I think I always focus on the positive thing that someone is doing before going into the, you know, maybe constructive criticism.
3: <laughs> you're like, hey, great job. Okay, for the next three hours, we will go <laughs> through a laundry list of how you've disappointed. No, just kidding. That's interesting. So you focus on the positive.
1: Yeah, at least sub- I, I think that, that you compliment someone, you tell them what they're doing right, and then you you work in the things that aren't going so well.
3: Starting on positive, that's good. Yeah. Brian, what's your management style? Um,
5: I tell my people that you are responsible for your successes, and I am responsible for your failures, and your job is to make me not have to be responsible that often. <laughs> <laughs>
4: that's
5: good. That's a good one.
4: Wow. Joe? Yeah you know i feel like my job is to set my employees up for success and and to then back them up provide them with whatever i possibly can whatever whatever they need to continue to be successful and i try to stay out of their way i try to find people who know what i'm trying to achieve and they can execute that for me and which is difficult that's not always the easiest part uh and then kind of stay out of their way and just support them
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i uh i'm more I have two styles. One is to tear them down so that you can build them back up. No, that's not really. But I was going to say... my That mind. is totally the truth. John McEnroe. John McEnroe. Uh, where I am the one suffering. You've made me suffer. This so, is terrible so for me. First,
2: usually first you tear them down, and then you tell them that's how funny. much you're suffering right. because you had to tear them down. No, no, no,
3: no. I, 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 I have a, a can have a mean streak if I feel something is wrong. Someone's been wrong about something, or moral, or dishonest, or not upfront. But no, basically, I mean, I always want things to be happy and positive and growing, interesting. Things have to stay interesting, or else it's like a quagmire, and people don't yes. aren't happy. What would you say yours is? You I, have like 150 employees, I, 200 I like, employees. I like to
2: take a more eastern approach and flow like water. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> That would be my management style. Just flow like water. Oftentimes I think just fucking roll downstream on this one. Just roll downstream. You'll find a rock to hang on to, and soon this will all be over. It's nice to know you're
3: driving the ship there.
1: Eric, what do you got for us?
6: (laughs) Oh, I pretty much like what everybody said, but I will add by saying that I take a kind of the buck stops here approach, which is the fact that, uh, I tell my employees, like, I've pretty much done everybody's job at one point or another, and I've done them all at once, too, for a while. So, it's like, uh, I could do it without you, but you're here to help me, so, you know, step up and make sure you're worth it. Damn, I that's ballsy. Yeah,
3: yeah, no, if someone takes yeah. five times as long to do something, that then, yeah, you want to help them. You're a coach and, as a manager, It's something that you're supposed Mm -hmm. to know more about than they do, and even if you don't know anything, like it's technology, you still know what kind of questions to ask to make sure that they're maxing out. Also, sometimes you run, sometimes you walk. Sometimes you run, and it's okay to walk, and when you're walking or stopping, it's great, and it has to be embraced, but you know, you can't be walking all the time.
2: I've, I've only seen you run a few times and it's like <laughs> weird. No it was one right. likes to definitely see me running. Somebody should have slow motion videotaped it and put it on some sort of
3: meme. My YouTube running is account. a lot like walking. My running is it's about just the fast, fast, fast walking. walking.
1: All right. On the that note, we are going to take a quick break uh, and we'll be back with uh, more with Joe, Brian, and Eric for Stick the interview on. part of yes, the show. Yes, for the interview part of the show.
0: Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise and affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Schwa was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com.
7: Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Diane Stemple. And I'm Elena Santigade, and we're the hosts of Cutting the Curd here on Heritage Radio Network. Featuring interviews with makers and mongers and everybody in between, this show is a downright funky look at the world of artisan cheese. You can find Cutting the Curd wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org.
1: And we're back. We were just talking about, uh, I proposed having a uh, Passover (laughs) matzah pizza available at Roberta's on Easter. Nice. Brandon, something to think about.
2: A flat, crispy pizza? (laughs)
1: Specifically with, on with, Easter with bitter, for the Jews With bitter,
2: with bitter herbs And lamb, <laughs> and lamb. And yeah. fish. Bitter gefilta. herbs, lamb, no cheese Just
1: the gefilte no jelly, jelly,
2: the jelly. <laughs>
5: oh.
1: That's the worst part that of it That is the best that's, I, hate I that like part. to put
5: that gefilte jelly and buttermilk together mm. And then with my coffee
1: Oh god, that's oh. good so good. All right. We are the main course OG, of course, broadcasting live from Roberta's here in Bushwick. Uh, we are here in studio with Joe Carroll, Brian Kenny, and we have Eric Koss on the line. Uh, we are going to jump into our segment, The Weekly Grill. Um, Joe. Yes. You are the owner of St. Anselm, Fetzau, Spoot and you're doing a partnership with Star Restaurants, expanding outside of New York. Mm-hmm. What rules have you broken within your niche? Those of being craft beer, barbecue, and steakhouses, or are you a rule follower?
4: No, I mean well, you know, in a weird way, I, I am a rule follower that made me break rules because when we first opened Spite and Dival, for example, you know, beer ale should be served at a very particular temperature, lager at a different temperature, but nobody was doing that. So I made sure that we had two refrigerators set at very distinctly different temperatures. And there were just things like that that I felt like were details that were rules that nobody was following. So by kind of following those rules, I was going against the grain of what was happening. You were innovative
3: really, by going yeah, to a Yeah, in
4: a weird way, right. Um, we didn't use branded beer glasses. We used nice Riedel wine glasses to serve the beer in. So there were things that just seemed logical to me that seemed like this is the way it should be done, but nobody was doing it.
3: What about how you set up your restaurants, like the flow of it? or being like a pickup stand for barbecue. So I, that's,
4: To me, that's not innovative at all. I mean, to me, that's the New York deli, right, or, or b- an Italian deli for that, any kind of, like, that's, I grew up bu- buying food, eating food that way all the time, and it seemed logical to do it that way. It seemed, you know, to me, there was a, a really distinct connection between barbecue, particularly Central Texas barbecue, and the New York deli. And I just felt like, well, you know, just draw that line, make that, make that connection happen. It was there. So that that's where that whole you know style of ordering and everything came up.
3: So your rule breaker follower, you follow by breaker.
4: I think it you know it depends on the rule. It's you got to take everything individually and look at it, and what what rules are worth following, and what rules need to be broken.
3: So what if you had these two, these three great places: craft beer, steakhouse, barbecue, mm-hmm. and you had to open the same three in two different cities? Like what, what would be two cities that excite you and maybe what would be two cities that would not excite you? Well,
4: you know, I just opened a St. Anselm back in September in DC. And I gotta tell you, man, I am really in love with the DC market. It, mm. For And I'll, I'll tell you why. it's It's been underserved for so long and it is a really wealthy market. It's a densely populated city. It's a really small city. It's a transient city though. A little bit, but there's a lot of money and it's a really social city. And it's mostly not politicians; it's lawyers and lobbyists going out every night, spending a lot of money. And they are so hungry, man, for something cool and something interesting. They've been so underserved for basically the history of DC. Uh, there's been very little of interest there. And the, I mean, the moment we opened down there, they were just, you know, kicking in the door to get in. They they just couldn't wait for something else, you know. So,
1: is there another market like DC? I don't,
4: I don't know actually that there is in that in that way that has all those ingredients. Uh, and the only the only issue with market like DC versus New York or perhaps even some other markets is there's no professional service industry pool to hire from. There's not a giant pool of waiters and waitresses and bussers and dishwashers, uh, unlike New York. Um, so. That
2: that's a, that, I mean that exists all over
4: the United States. Yeah, I would I, New York is kind of a phenomenon yeah. when it comes
2: to yeah. the, the the mass amount of of like industry people right. that exist. I mean, you could. What go, do you mean? Like
1: when your dishwasher walks out and you can have one within two hours yeah. because so, someone calls a friend?
2: Yeah, you you, no you definitely can. And, and like even in California, San Francisco, for instance, that it probably is probably maybe the second largest right food industry yeah. kind maybe of Chicago and, and, right, and then and then Chicago and their theirs is even like right a third of the size of our of our pool yeah
4: so that's 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 the only challenge um but beyond that dc i think is a a very interesting market because it 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 has these components that a lot of other cities don't
1: eric i have a similar question for you you know your paper the alameda sun uh you are in a, a hyper local market if you were to launch another paper what's the next hyper local location anywhere in the country that you would maybe pick
6: Well, you know, I think Joe used a pretty key word, which was underserved. Um, I think there's a number of sort of medium-sized cities out there that are under the shadow of a larger, more prominent city that probably aren't getting the kind of attention that they deserve. Um, Our city is about 80,000 people. And for the most part, the city government here doesn't get covered by the sort of nightly news or Uh, major news sources. And so we fill a kind of niche. And I think that's the main reason why we're here. So if there was another niche like that, where there was, uh, you know, a medium-sized community that wasn't getting uh, its news published, uh, that would be the kind of place to go. And to be honest, the big old city next door, Oakland, California, no longer has a, a really serious print operation. The Oakland Tribune is no more. It's been gobbled up by this thing called the East Bay Times, uh, which covers multiple cities and none of them very well. And so I think that uh, there is a place for e- uh, every city to have its own print publication. And uh, whether that print publication takes its form <laughs> like electronically um, is sort of a uh, uh, you know, a a separate discussion maybe for a whole nother show, but um, just the fact that that news content is being produced somehow um, is a a niche. And I think there's plenty of those that are wide open because the big media corporations gobbled up all these small newsrooms, and yet the need that those newsrooms uh, uh, fulfilled is no longer being fulfilled. So
5: that niche remains, right? There, yeah, there's no there's no document of record for many large cities. You know, six four to six four to eight hundred thousand person cities. There's no newspaper. There's a yeah. there's something that regurgitates wire stories, and and then maybe there's uh, class- not even classifieds. There might be obituaries.
6: That's broken, right. and there might be some uh, opinionated blogs, uh, which tend to have some kind of uh, agenda and aren't very objective and don't necessarily follow any sort of journalistic ethics, not like anybody is anymore. But uh, (laughs) the uh, idea is that, um, I don't know, blogs tend to take some kind of a position that isn't as objective.
2: How many small-town newspapers still exist? I I know the small town I grew up in, Napa, still has the Napa Register, has for years. You, you, I don't know. I guess there's like a romantic side that thinks that there's still they, a lot of small time, small towns that still have a paper. Regist-
5: I think the Napa mm. register got bought by the Yikes. S- Santa Rosa. But I mean, the, the, I can't Probably
3: even. very few, unless it's right? a very small city, maybe. I wrote or they're, the,
1: owned by larger, they're owned by larger corporations. Which is not who good. Who just also use the same right. articles. The AP same, wire. The same yeah. AP wire, and they do a little bit of local content.
5: Very little. I wrote for the yeah. Reading Record Searchlight, and the, it still had a local entertainment section. It's still had a local government section. It was a good-sized newspaper. And over the course, be, I started writing for them in 2000, and... Over the five years that I wrote for them, it just shrunk every year, and it was still one of the, the most profitable um, papers. In it was Scripps Howard. Now it's McClatchy, I think.
3: It was one of the most uh, profitable in fo- Reading. Well, no,
5: and <laughs> if you looked at the at the profit margin on the paper, it was the it was one of the most profitable papers in the entire syndicate. Hmm. So what did they do? They s- stripped out all the stuff that
3: made it good, and kept the money Hmm. right by the way you you make your money uh your employer is one of the largest print publication organizations in the world yeah the hearst corporation but i mean that among other things yeah they do a lot of different things they have a, a huge ranch which is how we met but uh what does it mean to be the archivist for the hearst family
5: yeah well as i mean i do tech technology and and archives so they're linked so really what I'm doing is the beauty of my job in art collections is that I get to make decisions that for a couple hundred years. So there are pieces of art that we conserve that um, we're, you know, we're preserving them, conserving them so that they'll be there for the family in a hundred years.
3: And for the society, right? Because it's not only owned by the family. I mean, in some Museums, cases. Museums, right? Yeah,
5: but no, I don't do that. I deal with the stuff on the family estates. Huh. And so it's, and I deal with the papers that document William Randolph Hearst's life and career and the technology side, I'm bringing technology to these properties like the San Simeon Ranch and and uh, this state up by Mount Shasta in far Northern California, where they're still running data on copper lines that were put in in the early 1900s. And, and uh, we just put in a seven mile fiber optic backbone. So the The beauty of my job is it stands at the nexus of modernity and antiquity, which now the present is the confluence of the past and the future. Right. So. It's, What's
3: the saga? Where's the state of the fountain, the Shasta Mountain fountain?
5: Uh, which fountain was the but, bay
3: fountain that you had to? Oh. Lift up with the cray. Yeah. And it was a big saga for uh, many years.
5: Yeah. No, it's ongoing. We're, we're finishing right. My team right now today is finishing conservation on the 6,000 pound limestone bowl. Mm-hmm. The property where we are working, there are no right angles and nothing's level. So when you go to lift <laughs> a 6,000 pound limestone bowl that's cracked three quarters of the way through, you do it with a gantry and chain hoists and you do it slowly and methodically. So it's been a three year project and we are going to reinstall all that when i get back from new york
2: this is i think i remember this property as a kid this is the one that has like doors that open into nothing and, yes. uh, and it's the, very strange Yeah, and strange there's place. The, there's
5: the the tunnel that goes to the hall of the mountain king where the lamorians live or so i read on the internet they haven't showed it to me yet but no it's a really interesting job when i left the beef job and roland camacho took it over he worked with me for 8 years And I got this job, you know, it was um, I studied archaeology and then I was in technology as a software engineer. And then I got into agriculture. I worked at the Hirsch Museum of Anthropology as an undergrad. So it was basically a 25 year loop where I went back to where I started. So it's been cool. And I love the fact that we helped you guys start this.
3: Yeah, well, he brought a, a station that was in a limousine. And uh, you know, coming here at eight in the morning, and I, I think I texted Brandon, Chris, and I was like, "Guys, please, Mister Hurst is here. He really loves your place. Wants to see it. And you guys came and opened early that day, and, and he fell in love with the place
5: and the pork chop, yeah, and that wood-fired, yeah, that good, that, that
2: big old double yeah, cutter, yeah, wow, that thing out of the out of the
5: pizza, oven. and right. he still tells that story because it's, he yeah. thought when we got out here, he's like. This is like something out of The Sopranos. He said, did you take me out here to have me whacked? I'm like, no.
3: Well, because this was a <laughs> We're in here to dine. <laughs> 2008, so it yeah. was a different neighborhood. A double-cut uh, 8 a.m. pork chop. He was a visionary because he felt in this place, which everybody felt when they first walked in here, especially back then, that there was something very permanent about this and that his money would be well spent, that it wouldn't just be a fly-by-night restaurant. I mean, everything in it was handmade.
5: What he said was this is patrick's thing and i
2: said yeah and he said then it's let's do it wow and he made it 10 years this guy 10 years 10 years and we're
3: both on the board me and brandon and i'm chairman still but i've offered to step down after 10 because i don't want to hold it back (laughs) i don't want to hold the hold it back
5: that's that's the right attitude
3: well,
2: no, this is this is exactly what he was talking about, his management style. He's playing victim right now, right. so then later he could yell at us all.
3: I'll just, you know, give my brain a rest. I'll probably get Alzheimer's from right. not from all the stress. Much, yeah. But you know, it's up to you guys. No,
5: Turkmen Boshi did the same thing too when he took over in Turkmenistan. Hey, I'll be happy to let go of the reins, you know.
3: <laughs> then he <laughs> shut down the too. schools. <laughs> Fidel is like, this yeah. is very temporary.
5: I'm only doing this until we find somebody better. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, it is the ten-year anniversary of Heritage Radio Network. Uh, you've been listening to the Main Course OG. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, Joe, Brian, and Eric. And uh, we'll stick around for Tech Bites up at eleven, and we'll see you guys next week.
3: Thank you. Thanks. Cool. Thank Thanks. You.
7: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio, supported by you.